0: Hello, it is 7 a.m. in New York, 1 p.m. in Johannesburg, and 6 p.m. in Bangkok. Welcome to In Transit with Sunday Bean. I am an intercultural strategist, transformation facilitator, and solution-oriented coach. And I'm on a mission to help you adapt and succeed through any life transition. It was morning in Bangkok, and I hadn't got much sleep because I was up late talking to some dear friends. I kind of hobble over to the breakfast buffet and grab some scrambled eggs, even though I wasn't hungry. And I set my eyes on a really big table with one woman sitting there. And I sat down across from her. But it was this awkward-sized table where it was such a big table that it was almost like we weren't sitting across from each other. But I sat down, and she didn't know this yet but I did so on purpose because I wanted to talk to her because the day before she made me cry. I knew who she was, but she didn't know who I was. And by the time you're hearing me share this, you probably think I sound like a creepy stalker, but I promise you, I was not. Closer to a fan, I am someone who admires her work and her cutting-edge research. The person I'm referring to is Dr. Danao Tanu, author of the book Growing Up in Transit. You might recognize her from episode 146, Hidden Hierarchies in International Schools. Welcome back to the podcast, Danao.
1: Thank you so much, Sunday. That was a very nice intro. <gasps> yeah, the days of in-person conferences. Thank you. Really happy to know. be back. i um, very excited for today. Thank you for inviting yeah. me back.
0: Yeah, it breaks my heart that we aren't having an in-person conference because it is happening right now with FIGT, but here we go. So let me tell more about you, Danao, for our listeners. Danao Tanu is a visiting research fellow at Waseda University and a Japan Foundation fellow. She holds a PhD in anthropology and sociology and is the author of the book I mentioned, Growing Up in Transit, The Politics of Belonging in an International School. It is the first and only book on structural racism in international schools. As a child, Danao moved around with her mixed heritage family, speaking Indonesian, Japanese, and Chinese or Mandarin at home and English at international schools. She's currently researching Tokyo's Global Youth and Volunteers as co-founder of TCKs of Asia and for the Families and Global Transition Research Network. All right, Danelle. So you were so kind to agree to come back today because our conversation that first took place was in October 2019, right? And in our expat space, at least, um, there weren't a lot of people yet talking about this. Little did we know that four or five months later, COVID would hit. And the whole Black Lives Matter movement took another level because of the, the killing of George Floyd. So you were so kind to come back and help me understand what has changed since then. And just a caveat here for the listeners, Danau and I are going to talk about a few terms that may be unfamiliar to some listeners, so I'll spend a few minutes making sure we have shared definitions. The first term is TCK. TCK are called Third Culture Kids. It's coined by Ruth Hill Usim and made popular by David Pollock and Ruth Van Recken. Third Culture Kids are children who grow up or spend a significant part of their childhood living outside their parents' passport or home culture. And in the DEI space, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and sometimes J, justice, we talked about institutionalized racism and whiteness. Joma Oluo, the author of the book So You Want to Talk About Race, said in her 2020 NPR interview that systemic racism is the subtle and not so subtle biases against people of color to disempower us and put us at risk. And so we've been fighting for job opportunities, for safety from violence, for equal education, for freedom from medical racism. She goes on to say that it is not upheld by how you love or don't love people of color, but by how you participate with these systems. Right, so I hope that helps you get a taste of what we mean by that. And then whiteness. Whiteness is a term that originated in the mid 1990s from scholars Dr. Thomas Nakayama and Robert Križek. Whiteness, rather than looking at individual air quotes white people, refers to a system as a as a discourse and as an identity that had until then escaped close scrutiny, or at least by white scholars. <laughs> and it takes the unexamined practices and thinking, the invisible, and looks at what is often taken as the standard against which other things are measured, right? It explores what we think and how we, um, what we practice and asks, if this is a standard, who does it benefit and who does it disadvantage? All right, so let's dive in. So tell me more about what has happened with you in schools since we last spoke.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for that question. Um, Absolutely, as you said, like so much happened. And, you know, neither of us saw it coming, Mm -hmm. but after the murder of George Floyd, um, for a one or two months, I think, uh, you know, there is a sense that I was just kind of like, well, we need to talk about this in international schools, too. But before all of this, um, it just felt like international schools were so, um, I don't know if idolized is the right word, but, it, you know, it's seen as, it's internat—it's called an international school, so it must be international Very proud of diversity and everything. And so there was no room to question what was happening in these schools. But after the murder of George Floyd, um, I think it was July, um, one of the alumni called Rachel Engel, um, who is also a PhD, who is now a PhD student, um, wrote an article, very short article saying, hey, international schools are not exempt from this. this. Mm -hmm. We should think about it. And that went viral. Um, Because a lot of the other alumni chimed in, myself included, going, yeah, we need to talk about this. And so from then on, then international educators who were, uh, you know, of of non-white backgrounds started to raise their voice as well. And there's always been this association called Association of International Educators and Leaders of Color or ALOC that had been around, but they really took the lead as well, as well as alumni. Um, And so there's been an acceleration of people trying to address this. But also, you know, COVID has been happening at the same time. So it's like a lot of schools have had to deal with going online and so on and dealing with the pandemic, as well as this move or push towards um, more an urge to address DIJ issues. But at the same time, I think sometimes uh, the online learning in some ways have accelerated and then suddenly I'm seeing this that people are actually talking about it and yeah that that had a huge impact on me it's beautiful
0: so I'm wondering there's I have so many things that are going on my mind right now I'm wondering has the conversation quieted in the international community or is it are people following through
1: um, I think it depends on the schools. The conversation has not quieted, and those who suddenly found a voice or an opportunity to voice their experiences um, are not backing down. So that's one, myself included, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And but I think we have started to see a bit of a pushback, where mm-hmm. community school communities have felt. You know, some schools have said it's become divisive, Divisive, which I don't think is the right way, is an accurate description of what's actually happening. You know, if it needs to be addressed, it needs to be addressed, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Some schools are trying to do it strategically. They know that they might get pushed back. So they're trying, they're setting things up for the next um, three, four years to address this. Uh, And some schools have kind of jumped into it. But I have heard of international educators you know, at least one, losing her job because she spoke up. And and so those kinds of pushbacks are happening. And it's become more clear that, you know, systems of power work together. And <laughs> it's a lot of people who are in it don't notice it. But, you know, leaders right. back, other leaders, um, and they can't quite see what the issue is. And, and so it becomes that one person who is voicing what a lot of people think but maybe it's the one person who has the guts to voice it
0: then it becomes just about that person your book brought me to tears you know i shared how it just breaks me when you said you spent eight years of your life you know to uncover the racism that's going on in schools and i'm just like why is it always the minority identity right? Like why is it always the ones that are impacted? You know what I mean? Like why is it always the ones, the ones with least power in this system that are the ones that are dedicating their lives to it? That's what's, it just breaks me. And hopefully the more we have these conversations and more people get on board, um, that will shift a bit, but It's the same thing, right? Those who are are sacrificing the most or risking the most, right, are the ones with the most to lose. And the ones that are quietest um, and are maintaining status quo are the ones who are benefiting most. And it's a big generalization, but I think you know what I'm talking about in terms of bigger systems. So that, that all happened. The attention is there. The conversations are still going on. Tell me more about you, if you don't mind. Like, what is been shifting in you since all of this has been going on
1: um yeah so the last time we talked was 2019 and that was you know what what prompted it was the families and global transition conference um the last in-person one um at least for now Mm -hmm. in bangkok and a lot in i've gone through a lot of internal processing since then And I thought that, you know, like I said, eight years of PhD trying to deal with internalized racism, been there, done that. It was all, I thought it was all done. Um, And then the FIGT conference just kind of triggered this whole new level or layer of um, internal processing. And I think during the PhD, it was more about me feeling as though growing up, feeling as though I was inferior because I was Asian, not white um and you know not coming from an English speaking family though I do speak English now. But the second level stage or phase was more about my I think hurt against um being excluded by the white the white whiteness, I would say whiteness, um, in the schools and And I say whiteness because I'm not trying to blame people or individuals, but the system, right? And coming to accept that I did actually grow up spending eight hours a day in a community, international school community, that was English speaking and where the teachers were mostly white. And that no matter how much I fight this, you know, I am part of that community They or they are part of my community. They are part of my childhood and mm-hmm. to process that hurt and coming to accept that was very, uh, yeah. So that's part of the process. And Sunday you were part of the process as I told you before <laughs> But Ruth Van Raken, Dr. Ruth Van Raken was part of the process as well. And, and through that as well um, in conversation, You know, so two things happened at FIGT 2019. That was one of them. Um, And then the other thing was I was in a session with Tanya Crossman, who's a third culture kid, Australian third culture kid, who has written a book as well called Misunderstood. Um, And uh, something that she was sharing. So she shared the story about how she was doing a session at an international school and it was, you know, focusing on language um, and got the students to write a poem in whatever language they wanted. And so they're like, "Really, whatever language?" And they're like, "Yeah, mix the language up if you want two languages, three languages, or just one doesn't matter." And so they wrote this poem, and then she got them to come up to the front of the class to read the poem. And they all read it. Some read, you know, some wrote English Italian um, poems. Some wrote it in complete Italian or whatever. Um, you know, all these different languages. And then there was this one student who was Polish. And this was, I think, a school in South Africa, if I'm not mistaken, but don't quote me on that. Um, And nobody else was Polish. Nobody else understood Polish. But she wrote the poem in Polish, came to the front of the class, read it. Nobody in class understood it. But when she finished reading it, Tanya says that everyone just like really applauded for her. You know clapped and applause and she says that she felt so celebrated and accepted and when i heard this in 2019 i just broke down and cried and i couldn't understand why because i'm like well my lang- english is my first language i don't remember learning it i never had a language issue at school why am i reacting so much And it took about two years to properly process this, where I felt that um, one of the hurts was towards whiteness and English speakers, but the other one was towards Japan. So my mom is Japanese, my dad's Indonesian of Chinese background. And so I forgot to mention that I felt that it had something to do with Japan, the reason I was reacting so much to this story. I didn't quite understand why, because I've never really identified as Japanese. Um, but after two years of processing, I came to understand that, you know, Japan being a colonial power, a former colonial power in Asia, um, sees itself in many, in oftentimes in many ways as superior to a lot of, of the rest of Asia. And so being mixed, you know, on the one hand, because I look Japanese and I sound Japanese, I sound like a native speaker, I do enjoy a lot of the privileges that this history Come you know that comes with the history, um, but on the one other hand, I am also on the receiving end of uh, Japanese sentiments against the rest of Asia, where they see it, the rest of Asia as inferior. And I think internally, I had blocked out Japan. So whenever I introduce myself, my mother is Japanese, my father is Indonesian, or I would say I'm Indonesian. I'm Chinese. I'm Canadian, because nationality-wise, I am. Um, but I've never said that I'm Japanese, and I've kind of blocked it out in that way. And so Tanya, you know, had a conversation with Tanya, and she kind of said, maybe saying that you were Indonesian was the easier answer because you know that Japan doesn't accept you, but Indonesia, um, you know, does accept you. But the thing is that's not the whole of your identity. Japan is part of your identity. And so I had to accept (laughs) that Japan is part of my identity in the same way that I had to accept that white people were part of my childhood and community. I had to accept those in power in that sense, even though they've hurt me. And yeah, I don't quite know how to express this, but that was really important to understand that Racism, in some ways, doesn't just negatively affect those who are not in power, but I think even those who are in power are hurt by it in a different way, in the sense that I, I, I think I shared before with you that, you know, if you can't see other people's humanity, if you're interacting with somebody, you can't see their humanity because of their race or their gender or their accent or whatever it is it probably means that you don't really see your own humanity as well. Right. And, and it's more difficult to pick up on
0: mm-hmm.
1: because it doesn't look like you're suffering from that hierarchy and that right. racism.
0: Right. Yeah. That's huge. What, what makes me think about is what I've learned mm-hmm. um, from other educators. Catrice Jackson is one that comes to mind. She talks about for example, white supremacy or whiteness, right? The culture of whiteness, those sort of things. It's like um, a toxin that is in your body, right? It's not just toxic to other people, but it's toxic to yourself. And um, it took a while for me to really see what that meant, right? Um, And how that toxin is not just for others, but in it's an internal process. It's big. It's really big. What did you – I want to ask you a question, and the question is this. What did you give up when you accepted the Japanese side of yourself and that you were in community, in whiteness?
1: That's a really interesting question, an interesting way to put it. <laughs> I haven't thought about it that way, but um, I think I had to give up. I think I had to let go of the hurt,
0: mm-hmm.
1: probably. And I had to, I actually had to, I, I mean, I've, different people have different ways of dealing with this, but in my case, I kind of verbally said, I forgive Japan. Mm-hmm. For looking down on Indonesia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And just saying that, <laughs> I'm feeling quite emotional, but like I had to forgive Japan. <laughs> mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and you know, as long as I don't forgive Japan, because it is my mother's identity. It's almost mm-hmm. like I'm rejecting mm-hmm. my mother's identity, right? And I I care about my mom, she cares about me. And so I had to do that. And I, I think I had to let go of the hurt, basically, um, mm-hmm. to do that. And letting go of the hurt doesn't mean, you know, when you forgive someone or a country in this case, it doesn't mean that what they did was right. It just means that you're not going to, how do you word it? I don't know if to hold it against them is the right word, but you're not going to let that hurt affect yourself. You're not going to let don't. that hurt uh, prevent you from connecting. Um, yeah, negatively affect you, I suppose.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, now it's so interesting. Mm. You say give up the hurt, and the word that's coming up for me is healing. Mm.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. that's exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it yeah, doesn't and- mean
0: that you don't have a scar, right? doesn't mean it's no. like you're allowing the wound to no longer be filled with salt, so to speak,
1: right? Mm. You're
0: allowing the scar. A scar will always be there. Mm. But your pain might change.
1: Yes. Yes, totally. I think healing is the right word. And also, you know, I can't sit around and pretend like I'm not half Japanese, right? <laughs> My mother mm-hmm. is Japanese. Mm-hmm. So I am, you know, I also benefit from that. Mm-hmm history from the privilege and so if I can't deal I don't know how to word this but like if dealing with my hurt is also about seeing the ugliness inside of me because if whenever we're part of the privileged group or we're trying to become part of the privileged group, there's always this ugliness inside that appears. And this is not my word. Um, somebody on Twitter kind of used this word. And I thought it was, a you know, who had read my book and said, um, you know, she ha- helped her deal with the ugly inside and she, the third culture kid. Um, mm-hmm. And so and I thought that was a really great way of wording it, the ugly, with a, with a mm-hmm. particle, the. And so when you're we're part of the privilege group, we live in this world. I think it's a myth. It's a fantasy to think that we're not affected by these attitudes, that we don't have any sort of prejudice. It's a complete totally. fantasy. We live in this world. We see it in the media. We hear it from our families and friends. It's everywhere. So of course we're gonna pick this up, um, even though we're consciously going. You know, I'm anti-racist. I'm all for DiJ myself included. But sometimes these these prejudices will crop crop up, and so, um, yeah, you got to deal with the ugly inside, and that's a very mm-hmm. liberating feeling. It's
0: awesome, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know.
1: But it takes courage to mm-hmm.
0: admit.
1: Admit that it's there. Oh man.
0: (laughs) I connect with so much that you're saying from the dominant identities that I hold, right? The ugliness is that toxin that I was talking about before. You know, the more I learn or the more I unlearn, I should probably say, there's so many times that I learn by messing up, right? And I'm an interculturalist. Mm. I should know better, right? Doesn't just because I know doesn't mean I always do better because I'm trying to do more. And I mess up. I mess up. And I've had, I've had a couple experiences in the last six weeks where I messed up. And, you know, how do I go back with my tail between my legs and say, I'm sorry, like, sorry, my whiteness was showing or sorry, my straightness was showing, you know, and I'm Mm -hmm. sorry if whatever impact that had on you. You know, Mm -hmm. and that is that's hard. And there are times where I want to put the duvet over my head. But I know that's also a privilege to be able to choose to do that. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: To hide Mm -hmm. the ugly, working on the ugly. That's what I meant. The ugliness. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Toxin. I I like the metaphor toxin as well, because it is a toxin uh, towards ourselves. But um, also, yeah. Totally, saying sorry is really hard. But one encouraging thing for the audience is that the first time is extremely hard, Um, (laughs) and but if you can get over that and just kind of Mm -hmm. bite your tongue and do it, the second time will become easier. And I feel Mm -hmm. like in my uh, in my experience at least that it becomes easier each time. Um, But it's never, you know, it's always hard in some way. It's never going to be like totally easy, but yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, um, I have a friend, we talk about this idea of something being real and raw and I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's what living is, right? That living real and raw is that trying and messing up and apologizing and going back to it again. That's really big. Thanks for sharing that. The topic is so big, but we see this is what I think happens when we go from like the academic, the structural racism and institutions and, you know, the things that are almost safe to talk about because they're outside of us, right? And you've created a space where we could talk about the things that are inside of us, right? How those structures and institutions then have a really personal, like on a cellular level impact on us. So thanks for making space for that. What's coming up for you right now? What is it that you want to say next?
1: What I wanted to say, I think, connects with what I was saying previously, that this impacts everyone. And I found a great example of this is there's a third culture kid called Tim Brantingham, who wrote a blog. And in that blog, he says, you know, he grew up in Taiwan. So he spent 17 years of his first 18 years in Taiwan. But he says that he wasn't really paying attention to Taiwan he was always looking to the US. He's American, his parents are American. And you know, this is this is very common for third culture kids to be infatuated by their parents' mm-hmm. country. So there's and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um but he also says that, you know, the common story of TCKs, they repatriate, he repatriated and struggled. And then he realized that, you know, he should have paid more attention to Taiwan. And mm-hmm. I ask international educators, you know, why why wasn't he paying attention to Taiwan? Was it because mm-hmm. of this hidden curriculum in schools that did not lend, uh, you know, did not, that, that the school didn't pay attention to the local community in the way mm-hmm. that we would if we were living in our own countries because maybe it wasn't English-speaking for whatever reason? You know, was mm-hmm. it because of the structural racism that was permeating um, in the curriculum and so on? Was that be- why... He wasn't paying mm-hmm. attention to Taiwan, and and so his advice to third culture kids is, you know, pay attention to your to your host country and get to know them, get to know the host country well. So from that, you know, if we're gonna if we address structural racism, it doesn't just help the non-white kids while they're in mm-hmm. school; it also helps the white kids understand their childhood community. And uh, my guess is that it will help them when they repatriate, because, you know, at least they've got connection, a meaningful connection to the places where they grew up. Because at the moment, if you don't pay attention to the places that they're growing up, then, you know, when they return, what are they returning to? It'll just be a building. The teachers are gone. My classmates are gone. Right. You don't connect with a building. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So mm. I firmly believe that this is, if we address structural racism, it's good for all students in international schools, yeah. including those who are part of the dominant culture. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. It's hard. So how do you stay motivated to do what you do?
1: <laughs> how do I stay motivated? Um, I, I guess in a way if it feels almost like a calling, like that it just, have to say it and seeing international educators who are struggling um when you know those who are not part of the dominant culture in schools um going to these ALOC conferences meetings and seeing them i think and you know we have these bipoc affinity spaces And I have noticed that the BIPOC affinity spaces um, and then spaces where you do have white educators, the atmosphere is completely different. I think Mm -hmm. in um, spaces where there are a lot of white educators, when they speak about DIJ, there's a sense of hope that we're making change and progress. Mm -hmm. When I go into the BIPOC spaces, um, there's often somebody crying in there because mm. it's just been a very hard week, um, mm. the pushback and whatever, the racism they've experienced. And it becomes a place for them to sort of survive. They need that space to survive their daily lives. Um, and so seeing that, and then especially when somebody talks about how they see it in the eyes of their students. So when I hear young people, when I hear students, talk about this, I'm just like immediately in tears because
0: mm-hmm. I know
1: what that felt like. Um, Yeah, so I think that's what keeps me going. And because I'm in a privileged position, I mm-hmm. will not lose a job by speaking up. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel, you know, I need to use that privilege to speak up.
0: Um, mm-hmm. It's beautiful. I, I do have hope. It's hard to have hope sometimes, <laughs> but I do have hope for when I'm seeing what's going on um, in the schools and the conversations. And I, I look at my boys, you know, we have passport privilege, they've got male privilege, they've got, you know, white privilege, they've got all kinds, you know, and I, I hear them um, have conversations at a level that I didn't even have concepts for until I was at college, right? These are not foreign concepts, and I'm hoping that those things will impact their behaviors and the choices that they make, you know, as they go, as they go further. So I'm curious, we've talked a little bit about, you know, this, the big picture of your work and the impact it's having, the timeliness. I mean, I'm so grateful for the work that you did when you did so that when people were ready to listen, you had this to bring into the conversation. So for those of you listening who know my work, you may know that I'm all about ambitious transformation and perhaps the most ambitious transformation i can imagine is an equitable and inclusive world a global community that respects the richness of the cultural language ethnic racial physical ability sexual orientation gender age and national diversity of its members to name a few so thank you to for your contributions in that direction. If you don't mind, I'd love to to focus on where you're at right now. You know, we talked about this idea of ambitious transformation, transition, a concept I'd like to talk to all my guests about. The first question when we talk about this is transitions. Which transitions are you feeling right now?
1: Mm. Um well I am literally in transit with sunday bean right now (laughs) i have have just moved to japan um from australia so physically geographically i'm in transit geographic transition is the big one and i was welcomed by with a big earthquake um coming here um probably the biggest and longest i've experienced in my life even though i've lived in japan you know this is my fourth time um but what's interesting, one of the things that's interesting is it's my fourth time living here, third time in university, in a university setting. And so there's a sense of been there, done that, and I am better at it now um, mm-hmm. and much faster at, you know, making connections or whatever, but also um, internal transition, I suppose, Um I can't get into it, but a lot of transitions with the family, a lot of healing, um, mm-hmm. that's happened with the family, where, and that's been extremely important. I, I don't quite know how to share it without sharing it. Right, <laughs> <Wait, laughs> right. Yeah, There's other personal stuff happening. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean, so I think just that is already yeah. says so much, right? Like you're, you're going through a geographical transition, a professional mm-hmm. transition, and there's all kinds of other things that are happening in the background. And I, that's one of the reasons why I find it so important to ask that question, because mm-hmm. if we don't have a window into that, what we see is a successful researcher and academic, right? What we, mm-hmm. it helps us see you're also human too. <laughs> you're also doing life two right
1: so yes. when it comes
0: to transformations right so this it, i talk about internal led external led and performance led i'm curious you know you've got your phd you've got a fellowship are you performance led or are other things happening in your life that are are pulling you more um
1: i think yeah, it's a lot, a lot of it would be internally led, especially mm-hmm. right now with universities. Um, my alma mater in Australia, the University of Western Australia has just abolished my department, anthropology, mm. and also completely reduced research in Asian studies and, you know, international relations, all these departments that study other societies and done by and it's, the movement has been led by an Asian vice chancellor, um, mm. which I find extremely unfortunate. Um, and so in that sense, I think my disillusionment with academia means that I am not holding ambition in mm. that sector. And so a lot of it is internally led where I want to I do. I, I've seen the impact of my research from my PhD Mm -hmm. um how it's spoken to people not just analytically but to their hearts you know when somebody Mm -hmm. says i read it and it helped me deal with the ugly in my heart um and so i want to do more research and i love Mm -hmm. it and Mm -hmm. in the hopes that you know the next one will also help another sector in our society
0: um I'm taking away a lot to now. I don't, I never know what's going to come up when we talk. <laughs> it's been, it's been really powerful. And my hope is that the people who are listening hear it from the place that we're processing from, right? There's a lot of big things that we've talked about today. Some of the things can be scary for people to hear if it's not something that they feel ready Um or are not there on their journey. Um, So it's been really, really interesting to start this conversation and, and, and keep it going. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's meant the world to me to have you. If you're on your own journey of ambitious transformation and would like support, don't miss out on my brand new Ambition VIP series where you can give yourself dedicated space to sort out your thoughts get answers to your burning questions, and tackle your toughest goals. Pick one of these three private coaching options and get me by your side. Whether you have a plan or don't, one objective or many, need a kickstart or a complete reset, I have got your back. Sample size coaching with full size results. Thank you for joining me on In Transit with Sunday Bean. I'm so grateful for you as listeners as well to be here. I will leave you with the words of Brene Brown. Never underestimate the power of being seen.